Hi, this is Rob from Racktime. You're about to listen to an exciting virtual panel that's part of What's on Joe Mind's Virtual JoeCon 2020. Before you start the fun, this event is a fundraiser for World Central Kitchen, an organization that provides meals to first responders and victims of tragedies like this one. Please go to donate.wck.org slash what's on Joe Mind to donate if you can. All donations go to the World Central Kitchen. Now that you've done that, treat yourself to the high-quality entertainment ahead, or whatever it is we do here. Enjoy. Meanwhile, in the What's on Joe Mind home theater. That's how I sell it to Joe fans. Like, if you want to mask as a movie, just watch Fast and Furious. See, I, I saw the third one, and I was so turned off by it. If I'm feeling sick to my stomach and I have a third bowel movement, I call it the Tokyo Drift. <laughs> well, then. On that note... Welcome back to What's on Joe Mind's Virtual JoeCon. Today's panel is going to be a little bit of a different format. So without further ado, let me introduce today's host. It's your friend and mine, Vice President of Marketing at Boom Studios, Arun Singh. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Uh, we are contractually uh, obligated. <laughs> well, uh, you know, on behalf of everybody at What's Joe Mind, really excited to kick off knowing it's half the battle. Life Lessons from G.I. Joe. Here with our group of five awesome guests today, we're going to talk about the other half of the battle, which is learning and learning those lessons and, and all the great things that we have learned from, I, I think what we can all agree is one of the greatest franchises of all time, greatest mythologies, which is G.I. Joe. So I'm Arun Singh, you know, VP Marketing at Boom Studios. I know everyone's favorite G.I. Joe comic character is Hashtag who Fred Van Lente named, <laughs> named after me. So uh, please, let's make an action figure for someday so I can own myself as an action figure. So we're going to start by introducing Mark Weber, former head of marketing for G.I. Joe brand at Hasbro and former marketing manager at McFarland Toys. So Mark, next time you talk to Hasbro, if they can make a hashtag figure, my parents would be really happy to know their son was turned into a girl toy. You know, I know some people there, so, <laughs> you know, we'll probably make something happen. I got the poll I have is almost exhausted, but there might be one tug left. You know, Mark, we just met for the first time, but you're definitely my favorite. Or you know what? I like you more than Mike already. Let's say that because that, that's <laughs> not difficult. Amazing, <laughs> we have some other amazing folks here, including Paul Allor, the writer of IDW's critically acclaimed G.I. Joe series. And the gigantic top seller that is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Paul, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm, I just I don't want to people get the wrong idea. I've, I've written like some of the Ninja Turtles side books, but I don't I don't write the actual really well selling main book. <laughs> I, I will say, Paul, uh, you know, as someone who has that people might call us a rival company, but we are all friends in the comic industry. I do want to take a moment to congratulate Chris Ryle and the team and how well they've shepherded GI Joe over the years. And if you have not read Paul's series, it's a really fascinating new take on GI Joe. And I think oh, it's always you. cool when something in, in, infuses a new. And Ninja Turtle sells awesome in every form, so don't sell yourself short. There you go. Uh, next, we have Sarah Dietrich, co-owner of Roma Collectibles, cosplayer extraordinaire. Sarah, thank you for joining us tonight. Hey, uh, I, I can't believe I'm actually talking to all of you. Finally, last and, you know, might be least, uh, depending on your point of view, our good friend Mike, longtime host of What's on Joe Mind, Joe Declassified Contributor, 
former coil con show runner and look we're going to beat up on him but mike is a fantastic guy and he's emblematic of why the gi joe community is such a special one he is the reason we're all here today together so thank you mike for bringing us here and despite what i said in the intro it, it's always wonderful to have you back Arun. you're you really are <laughs> part of the family we try to figure out places where we can get you in even more but you have like a real job and time constraints and also, frankly, I am not a uh, G.I. Joe historian. I think as folks who noticed some on many mistakes in the last podcast will tell you. However, one thing I'm a big fan of, and, you know, it's always good to have icebreakers in these, is I'm a big fan of pro wrestling. And so are many people on this podcast. In fact, we were having a great conversation about some of our favorite wrestlers. And I kind of want to start off because knowing is half battle. And one of the things I want to know is we all remember our good friend Sergeant Slaughter joining the Joes. If you had to draft a wrestler from today, from AEW, from WWE, from wherever, into G.I. Joe, I'd love to know who you choose. So let's start with Paul. Paul, what pro wrestler are you drafting into G.I. Joe? <laughs> Sorry, um, slapping me a second with me because I think I'm the only non-wrestling fan uh, here. So, yeah, I'm going to go with the boring answer and say John Cena just because he, you know, I'm sure other people have much more nuanced and interesting and well-thought-out takes. But I look at John Cena and I'm like, yep. That works for G.I. Joe. We're good. People might call that boring, but he is built like an action figure. Yeah, so, he <laughs> And he, he's in a new Fast and Furious movie, which is really G.I. Joe adjacent. So I think, uh, <laughs> I think it's a great one. He, he seems to be a guy who uh, has, has morals and values and isn't afraid mm-hmm. to, to speak out about them. You know, so even, even beyond his wrestling persona, he just seems like a guy who espouses a lot of the values that I associate with G.I. Joe. Yeah, that's awesome. And those are the kind of conversations we're actually going to get in later today. So it's a great lead. And yeah, yeah, I think he's granted more wishes through Make-A-Wish than anybody ever, which is uh, an incredible achievement. And then, you know, Sarah, I know you're a big wrestling fan. Who would you be drafting into Joe or Cobra? I would take two. They They have to go together. I'm a huge fan of the Rhodes Brothers, Cody and Dustin. I think they're inherently interesting because they have such a unique dynamic being 17 years apart. So that would, I think, play out in a very interesting way within a Joe team. So I would take the Rhodes Brothers for sure. All right. The Nightmare Family making their way to G.I. Yeah. Joe. They even yeah. have a name that sounds like a G.I. Joe unit, you know? Right. Uh, <laughs> and Pharaoh. You yes. have to take Pharaoh. Oh, that's great. Finally, Timber would have some competition in our hearts. So then, Mark, you're also a wrestling fan. Who are you picking for, the, for Joe or Cobra? Well, it's not Randy Orton. Uh, <laughs> I think we'll I think we'll pass on that. Ma, I think Montez Ford and Lacey Evans are both legit ex-military, mm-hmm. so I I could go with that. Uh, or if you know if you want to go tongue in cheek, you could go Booker T. That is pretty it's, great. The Spinner Rooney would fit perfectly, right? With, I mean the old GI bro, right? So uh-huh. it could work. Uh, I love it. I love it. Mike, what about you? Who are you drafting Joe or Cobra? Well, I I think we need go no further than the huge Cobra tattoo on his arm. And it would help explain where he's been the last few years. You got to go CM Punk. Oh, I like it. I like it. What do you think his role is in Cobra? Oh, I I mean, does it matter? He's going to be out there (laughs) cracking wise and and being obnoxious and having good one-liners. I mean... Uh, that that could be it. He could be Captain One-Liner, you know. I, I love it. Uh, and I will say for my part, I would like to dr- to draft Chris Jericho in the inner circle to Cobra. I think they absolutely would fit in there perfectly. 
and uh, bring a bit of levity to uh, to the proceedings. So I think anytime you get Chris Jericho to talk a bit more and talk on behalf of Cobra, I think he could make some very scarily compelling arguments. And we know he fights with drones already, so he's already used to this kind of warfare. So <laughs> Codename uh, Pineapple Pete. You know, <laughs> Vanguard One can join G.I. Joe then. <clears throat> so for anybody who may be listening to this for the first time or doesn't know everybody on the podcast, I always feel like like every comic might be someone's first comic, every podcast might be someone's first podcast. And I'd love to hear about everybody's different origin stories with G.I. Joe. You know, when did you first encounter it and what made it stick with you? Maybe it was just a job at first. Maybe you encounter it as a child. Maybe you encounter it as an adult. So I'm going to switch up the order of things here because I'm going to break the rule I set beforehand. So, Mark, you had a – I know reading interviews with you, you were definitely a fan of Joe when you were younger. And you've lived, like, I think – everybody's dream which is getting to shape the gi joe brand so tell us how about like what made you a fan when did you first encounter it i i just ran into it i grew up in a very small town in the middle of oregon bend oregon and walking at the at the local store which no one would even recognize called buy mart walking through a buy mart and looking at the toy aisle and there they were the military look of it uh, jumped to me right away but the articulation you know it, it pretty much killed my love for star wars figures right there so I looked at, at you know, the whole pegs full of, of Joe figures, and I don't remember if they were all there. I find it hard to believe I would have passed on Snake Eyes. But looking at all of them and having a decent selection to pick from, I took Stalker, my very first Joe. And from there, the file cards hooked me, and the comic book pulled me in even further. And it's, it's my favorite brand ever, and that, that love never waned. And I ended up uh, getting into toys after getting out of radio, worked at McFarland Toys for a decade, and then went to Hasbro uh, and worked two and a half years on Transformers, and then was given the opportunity to move over onto the Joe team, uh, reporting to Daryl DePriest. And the opportunity to work on my favorite brand is just something I'll always be grateful for. The one bit of it that's you know, sour grapey is it was really low tide for the Joe brand when I got there. And so I had very limited budget for tooling and, and not many new items per year. So I didn't get to make as thorough a lineup as I would have liked, but I got to do some things and, and, and you know, maximize what I had to work with. So I like to think I, I made a good meal with very limited groceries. Well, Mark, what I can tell you as a fan is that your tenure at Hasbro coincides with when I rediscovered G.I. Joe. So uh, for whatever sour grapes there may be, I could tell you that what you did there and what you led helped lead me to meeting Mike and the What's in Joe Mind crew in its various iterations, but also helped reignite my fandom. So as a fan, thank you for all you did because it was hugely impactful. Hey, I appreciate that. And I, you know, I think when you're only given four or five new items to make a year, you know, you can't have any duds. You know, you really yep. have to maximize not just the new stuff you're making, but since you were allowed to re-release older things, to find things that were still desperately wanted by fans and uh, just take care of some stuff that had been kind of haphazard over the years. We weren't sending samples to Larry Hama anymore. And I'm like, okay. how did that ever stop? And <laughs> they were yeah. famous for packing Troop Builder Cobras in two packs with single figure Joes like Blowtorch. And, you know, guys wanted 10 Heat Vipers, but they didn't need the other nine Blowtorches. So just putting Vipers with Grenadiers and two packs and things like that, there was the brand had not had a good steward in a while. And so I think because of that, I was able to correct some things 
that also dovetailed with the little bit of newness we were able to infuse. And for a limited total offering, I think it was a good couple of years for the brand. I will tell you, with the sheer amount of retaliation figures I have and, and the amount of alley vipers I've tracked down over the years, you you did a fantastic job. So thank you for that. So that's you're living the dream. Someone else living the dream is uh, Paul, who's writing, like, like I said, the fantastic G.I. Joe, reinventing it for a new generation, which, you know, sounds really big when you do it, when you say it out loud, but you're doing it with style. So like, what, what, when did you come to G.I. Joe? What, when did you discover it? Thanks. Uh, it was pretty late. I was aware of G.I. Joe as a kid and I, you know, watched the show. I mean, I was, I was born in 1978. So, you know, you can't be my age and not have a cultural awareness of G.I. Joe. But actually the fact that my older brother was a really big fan of it kind of made me go seek my own thing a little bit more. So it really wasn't until I was an adult that I became a fan of it uh, as a reader first, really through the early IDW comics, the Cobra series and, you know, all those those three intertwined series that they were doing at the beginning. When I first started writing comics professionally, uh, pitching G.I. Joe was one of the first things I got to do because it was right when... Um, 15-year-old spoiler, or 10-year-old spoiler, uh, Cobra Commander was killed in the IDW comics. And um, <gasps> yes, I know, shocking, right? And uh, the editor, Andy Schmidt, did an interview where he talked about how, well, you know, for us, Cobra Commander is, is, is a job rather than a man. And I read that, and my brain just started firing, and I emailed him basically that night, and I was like, if you ever want to do a comic where you explore some of the, the earlier people who have held that job, I am so down to to write that comic. And to my shock, he he was receptive because I knew Andy and he was familiar with some of my, my work. So I pitched him some stuff, ended up writing it, and, it, and it then because of some staff changes there, ended up kind of sitting on the shelf for, for several years before it came out in the form of a four-issue fill-in arc where the first two issues sort of revitalized all of my old ideas about previous Cobra commanders and told them in sort of like quick burst stories. And the second uh, two-issue part of that four-issue arc was all about Hashtag, everyone's favorite G.I. Joe character yeah. of all time. So, heck yeah. So, yeah, I did that. Then I didn't have an opportunity to do anything else in the franchise for a while. Uh, then years later, I did the uh, G.I. Joe Deviations issue, which was just an excuse for me and artist Corey Lewis to, like, tell a whole bunch of dumb jokes. And honestly, like, we made some jokes in there that I'm kind of shocked we were able to get away with um but we like referenced the youtube parodies of the of the of the psas um several times and just you know doing all kinds of stuff like that where they're like okay cool they're they're letting us do they're letting us you know have roadblock like die from eating a pork chop sandwich in our book so all right cool and a couple years after that, like Ruin said, I was given the opportunity to come in and work with Hasbro and Bobby Kernow, the uh, current editor of G.I. Joe, and uh, the artist Chris Avenhaus and colorist Brittany Peer to revamp the franchise for the new monthly comic. And uh, yeah, we've been, we've been having a blast. We have uh, five issues out so far, two more sitting, <laughs> sitting in a wait right now, and several more written after that. So hopefully, you know, when... When comics start coming out again, that run will continue. But yeah, we've been, we've been having a great time with it. And as someone who works in comics, I would say if you have a chance to call your local comic shop, many of them offer safe services. They can sh shift to you. They can do curbside pickup in many cities. But if you can support your local comic shop and even pay for the comics now, so many of your stores will take PayPal. Mm -hmm. They really help them. They're small businesses just like any other small business. They depend on loyal clientele. I just ordered, I'm a big Gundam fan, I just ordered a couple of Gundam models from my old store in Toronto where I was born, 
And I uh, just said, look, let me help you guys out, put some money to support you. So I think if you can, if you're in a position where you can support your comic shop, buying Paul's G.I. Joe series is definitely a great place to start. Absolutely. Uh, I also, I don't know when it's coming out now, obviously, but the, the first volume was scheduled to come out in, in June to collect the first six volumes. So you should, I believe, be able to still pre-order that from your comic shop as well if, you, if you'd if rather yeah. just get the, the book collecting the first six issues rather than get it in issues. Shop local, that's all we're saying. And Absolutely. on that note, Sarah, one thing I thought it was interesting about your bio, so I, my wife and I met when we both worked at Marvel Comics together. We met partly because she was big into cosplay. So she used to cosplay as the Baroness a lot. And so one of the first things we bonded over was G.I. Joe. I always think anybody doing cosplaying, cosplaying G.I. Joe is always that much cooler because it's Joe. So tell us about like what brought you into G.I. Joe and what's kept you a fan of it for so long. I got into G.I. Joe a little bit differently than a lot of folks. I kind of came in sideways. Cosplay was my first real introduction to G.I. Joe. My first character was Zorana, and how that came about was I was working with my husband. Aaron runs Roma Collectibles, and uh, we were setting up at a show, and he said, hey, why don't you dress up like a G.I. Joe character? And, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of experience with Joe. I, I played with the figures a little bit with friends when I was a kid, but it didn't have, you know, a, a very strong memory. So I started looking through characters and I saw Zorana. You know, she's got this pink hair and she's a biker chick. And I'm like, all right, this is who I want to go for. So I, I picked her, had a lot of fun, and it kind of spiraled out of control after that. My first Joe Con was uh, 2011. And I think after that, it just kind of, um, I got enveloped by the community. And I got to know G.I. Joe through the people who portray characters through cosplay, essentially. That's really cool. Uh, what other characters have you found fun to cosplay on the G.I. Joe side or conversely found like a giant pain in the butt? I was trying to find the word, trying pain in the butt to cosplay. So for pain in the butt, and if your wife has cosplayed as the Baroness, she would understand. Baroness hmm. is definitely the most pain in the butt because of, you know, the armor, the armor's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I have the Pit Viper Studio armor, and it's, it's wonderful, but it's not very practical. Like, I can't imagine an actual person stalking around trying to, uh, <laughs> you know, complete yeah. secret missions and whatnot in armor that is so loud as you're uh, just walking around. So that one's probably the most irritating. But uh, I really like Chuckles a lot. Um, mm -hmm. I read The Last Laugh, and that was... That was pretty much it. He was he was my favorite. So I love Chuckles. The Viper is probably my favorite costume that I do just because it's so visually striking. And I remember one of my earliest Joe Cons seeing a Viper and immediately I wanted to do that costume and I finished it this year or last year. So yeah, that was uh that was a big one. Got it done and I, I absolutely love wearing it. Uh, that's really cool. That's, that's great to hear. It's always interesting to hear how people get into the fandom in different ways. Some folks have mentioned the comics. Some folks have mentioned uh, the toys. But I think there's there's no wrong way to get into G.I. Joe because I think every iteration of Joe has something special in it, which is great. For me, I'll, I'll say that I was not allowed to watch G.I. Joe as a kid. My parents had a rule that we couldn't watch violent. We couldn't watch shows that had violence against people. So I could watch He-Man because that was violence against demons. Transformers was violence against robots. But they didn't want me thinking violence against other people was okay. So I couldn't watch G.I. Joe, but I guess eventually we ended up with figures. So my first figure was an Alley Viper figure, which Ooh. I just thought was like 
a bad guy version of Snake Eyes because they looked in my childhood mind similar enough to me. So uh, speaking of the cosplay stuff, I think Alley Viper is the one care is the one look I'd want to do one day because I think the colors are so exciting and interesting. So I may have to hit you up, Sarah, for some advice on that too. Because my wife is retired from the cosplay game, so I may need some more current advice on on how to get that all together. Yeah, and the Alley Viper is super sweet. I've I've thought about that. I I don't need any more costumes. I have enough, <laughs> but I've I've thought about that one. That one's pretty. That one's pretty sharp. And I think someone else has an interesting origin story, and it's probably the guy who's helped uh, either bring you into people into Joe, or like me, make me even a bigger fan of Joe. Is Mike? Like, what? When was your first encounter with Joe? G.I. Joe. 1982. I was seven years old, and so I may as well, as I've said in the past, had a bullseye painted on my forehead for the people at Hasbro at the time. Uh, I was who they were looking for. But it was not an instant love affair. We were, my brother Rob and I, Rob is two years older than me, we were like Star Wars snob kids at first. We saw this thing come through. We were not particularly enamored with the military because, hey, Star Wars was the alternative. And so I remember we kind of laughed at the name G.I. Joe even. We were kind of like, what, what the heck? What is this? And then one Sunday... After church, we used to go to this convenience store across the street from it. And he picked up the comic book, issue number five. Uh, and it's just this one-issue story. It's not really part of any of the big arc or anything, but it's it's the one where Cobra tries to steal the Mobat. And Breaker and Clutch and Steeler have to figure out how to escape this parade full of cobras in a tank with no ammunition. And uh, mm-hmm. it's a great story. It, it really, it, it gets it all it done in, in 22 pages. It is fantastic. You even, even get some, some in-depth uh, look at why Cobra is looking to steal what looks like an ordinary tank. Like they let you in on it a little bit. So it, it's really this, this great little self-contained issue. And from that point on, we were hooked. Rob's, he had a paper out when we were kids. And so he went to Woolworths one afternoon and came home with uh, Snake Eyes, Flash, and a Cobra Trooper. And he, we got those out of the package, and that like that was it. Elbows, knees, big swivel shoulders. You could put them in any pose you can think of. The guns and, and accessories and all that stuff were great. I went back with some some birthday money a couple of weeks later. My first Joe was also stalker, and I got a Cobra officer, and so we were able to flesh out both sides of the armies a little bit, and it just it rolled from there. And just you know, through the years, you know, Weber and I are about the same age, and so I I imagine just the both of us were sitting in front of our televisions, transfixed by everything that just kept going and building on the mythos. And the only difference was he was getting a suntan from his television. And Exactly, right? <laughs> my, lo- my long-time nemesis. Light. <laughs> but uh, anyways. So, and, and so, and then, you know, it, it just, it kept going until yeah. Yeah, late 80s. And then we, we kind of, you know, get into middle school and, and, and got into to girls and sports and things like that a little bit more and, and just, but like, it was almost like the first opportunity it was to turn back into that road. I took it. Hmm. <laughs> like I, I was still yeah. in college when I had started collecting again. 
So it, it, it really was. It was a it was a fierce bond. Well, that was probably a good time too before people started using eBay so much and realizing how much the toys were worth. I think back when you were probably could still get things like were you still able to get things relatively cheap at the time? Oh uh, yeah. Or were they were people already speculating? There was a little bit of that. I was on some of the old uh, mailing lists and stuff, but actually my first purchase when I got back into the game it was in 1996 on eBay, and I got a complete complete slugger with thunder for nine dollars. Well done. Yeah. So, you know, I think we've one of the great things is hearing how, like I said, how everybody's coming to Joe differently uh, for the youngins like Paul and Sarah and myself, you know, differently <laughs> than um, I know I'm a young 38, but not very young at all. Uh, so I, what I want to talk about, too, is something that relates to like everybody's talked about how the show impacted them in some way or created awareness. This panel was inspired by the idea that, you know, knowing is half battle and ever at the end of every episode. G.I. Joe wanted to teach us a lesson, maybe about not speeding, about looking both ways when he crossed the street, not using drugs, you know, simple stuff. But I do think uh, one of the things we've all talked about with G.I. Joe is, and you can hear in everybody's voices, is that it had a deeper effect on people. And I think there were other lessons we took from it. So for me in particular, one of the things I learned from G.I. Joe, and I had mentioned this, I think, to some of y'all in the email when we were talking before this panel, is that it was not, I think, a lesson G.I. Joe intended to teach me, but G.I. Joe is one of those things that has reinvented itself over time so many times and in so many ways. And I found for me in my life that spirit of reinvention, whether it be within a relationship or within my career, has been inspiring because I think what G.I. Joe shows us is you don't ever have to lose who you are as you as you acclimate and adapt to, I think, the new times and the new world. And that sounds incredibly broad. But when I was thinking about this panel, it was the first thing that came to mind. And that's one of the reasons G.I. Joe had a big impact on me. It was also, as a kid, it was the first toy line where my brother and I knew how to share things. Like he took the ninjas, I took the soldiers, because that's what we liked. Um, I got an Arashikage tattoo years ago as a reminder of how much my brother means to me, because that's what I think of when I think of G.I. Joe. So I would love to hear from the group. And I think, Sarah, let's kick it off with you as like, you know, what was the what was the first lesson you ever learned from G.I. Joe and how did it impact your life? I have to draw again. I have to draw from, you know, 2011 and and beyond. That's that's really where I'm pulling from. I'm kind of learning from people rather than from the the media per se, because I'm learning from people who grew up with this. So the values that those people have, they're showing me through through what they're doing, through their commitment, whether it's through something simple as dedication to a costume or whether their commitment to their job. We have a huge diversity within the finest of careers, of talents, of people. So it sounds really corny to say that you're learning about a fandom through its people, but I'm seeing a lot of like universal intangibles, teamwork and family honor struggle. So that's, that's really what made the impression upon me is the quality of the people within the fandom. So that shows me the quality of the fandom and the product itself. You talked about getting into it a bit later. Was there anything that surprised you about G.I. Joe fandom? Did you have any misconceptions maybe about them that you disposed of once you got more into it? I would think that I wasn't expecting to find people who were like me in the community because there are people from every walk of life. You've got professional people. You've got people who work for the government 
you've got a lot of military folk, and then you've just got, you know, you've got teachers and folks who work retail. So that really shows me that there was something within GI Joe that's going to speak to everybody. You know, when sometimes fandoms have kind of a a negative connotation, you think, oh, you know, this is just a bunch of weird nerds who like action figures, but it's it's really a lot more than that. So again, that sounds super hokey, but that's you know, I'm sorry, that's that's where no, I'm coming makes, from. <laughs> it makes sense. It's funny when whenever people talk about cosplay and bring up cosplay because we've been talking about it, and there's sports fans who look down at it. I'm like, but you go to games wearing someone else's name on a jersey right. that they're wearing on the ice. You're only wearing it because they're wearing it. You're cosplaying in in the stands, and I say that as a as a giant sports fan myself who has sports tattoos. You're just cosplaying there. You brought up something really interesting, Sarah, about values. And, Paul, I want to touch on what you mentioned earlier, because when you mentioned John Cena was one of your picks, you said he embodied a lot of the value you saw saw in G.I. Joe. Is there a specific value you think that's inspired you or has has helped shape you or impacted you in life that you got from G.I. Joe? That's an interesting question, because I did come to it kind uh, kind of late. You know, this isn't something that's connected to John Cena, but I think one of the first things I really learned from from G.I. Joe was just simply like the power of of great design uh, in terms of being able to fire people's imaginations. Because like even even as someone as a kid who was not actively collecting and playing with G.I. Joe, I still liked G.I. Joe because they looked incredibly cool. That sparked something in my in my brain. And I think that's one thing I, I really I really noticed, you know, through the through the fandom and through the franchise is is just that so many people in that fandom really do value that sense of imagination. They still have those those synapses in their brain being fired by these these incredible characters all these years later uh, and wanting to do new things with them and different things with them. And you know, when, when you talk about those core values of Joe, like what would you say are three of the core values you think that you infuse even to like you've reinvented GI Joe in a world where they're kind of the underdog. So like what are the core values you think still have to exist in Joe? Like what what has to be there for it to be GI Joe? Yeah, um, sure. I, I think I mean heroism is the obvious one. Selflessness, willing to to sacrifice not just small things, but make humongous sacrifices for for other people and for your country and your society at large, and and really just relentlessness. In my series, we're really putting the Joes in a situation where it looks like they're not gonna win, but they're not giving up. Where where they really they really are fighting this battle, knowing that it's not gonna work out for them, but they're going to, they're going to keep on fighting it right up until the end. Yeah, no, I think that spirit of relentlessness, that the, the idea that you always get back up is actually something mm-hmm. I think very much is in my brain is ingrained in GI Joe too. We have a gym in, in the townhouse we live in and uh, on the wall, I have a GI Joe skateboard that I got from Comic-Con years ago, but it has snake eyes on it. And the reason I have it up there is whenever I go to work out, I, I, I don't know what it is about snake eyes. I'm just like, it makes me want to go a bit harder. It makes me think, it reminds me like you have to keep fighting. And so I think that is something inherently Joe, but I think someone who knows that even better than us is, is Mark who you, you've had a hand in shaping GI Joe. So, you know, you talked about encountering stalker and those action figures and leaving the star Wars behind, or maybe putting them in second place as a kid. But what, what was it about GI Joe? You think that, what did it teach you and, and, you know, you and your family and friends as a youngster and then, what did you bring? What lessons from that did you bring to GI Joe when you were helping uh, direct it? I mean, I think what what leaped out to me, and I didn't even realize it at the time, and this was was in the toy line, and definitely in the comic, not so much in the cartoon, 
was just the instant diversity of the cast, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't even get into Cobra, if you just start with with the core 13 Joes that came out in the 82, I, I, I sketched it out real quick. There's only one or two of them that are just normal guys. Grunt is just that, a grunt from Ohio. Hawk is the leader, and you always got the sense he was maybe a little bit Silver Spoon. But those two are like the only ones that don't have a category or a clique you'd put them in. Snake Eyes, cool cool as he is, is disabled. Short Fuse has anger management problems. Rock and Roll's a California surfer. Clutch is a greaser from New Jersey. And if you read between the lines, he's Jewish as well. Steeler is blue-collar Polish from Pittsburgh. Grand Slam's a nerd. Flashes of brain. Scarlet is female, which is a big deal in 82 to put a mm-hmm. female figure in a very boy-focused line. Make her the second best fighter on the team, no less. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, she was a big deal. Her throwing, you know, throwing the other guys around to karate practice, you know, happened pretty quick in the in the in the comic book. Stalker's African American and his file card says former gang warlord. So it gives you an idea of, of a checkered past that a guy has risen above. Does They don't really come out and say it, but Breaker's from Tennessee, right? You could say Redneck, but he speaks seven languages. Like, he's incredible. Zap is Hispanic. So they really, really worked hard, Larry, I mean, Larry especially, to create this diverse cast that anybody could find somebody on there they could get behind, and Snake Eyes benefited from the same uh, ubiquitous popularity that Spider-Man has because could be anybody under that mask, right? Mm-hmm. As as a kid, you know, that that could be me. And they took a long time before they actually gave you, you know, a look at what Snake Eyes used to look like. So it didn't occur to me until a lot later in my life. But as a, a kid who grew up in a town that was 98% white, like— no racial diversity in my little tiny town in Oregon when I was growing up. I went to a, a shelf of G.I. Joe's and chose Stalker as my first Joe because because yeah. he, he looked the coolest. He had the camo, he had the cool gun, he had the beret. And so I, I like the idea that race didn't even figure into it for me as a as a young child, that I just went, that guy's the coolest. He's coming home with me. That's cool. Do you think that you talked about having, and since we're talking about some serious matters, you talked about having a pretty monocultural, I uh, think, surrounding. Do you think G.I. Joe, you know, opened your mind in ways that maybe you wouldn't have been otherwise if not for those figures or that lore? I think a little bit. I think, you know, Larry got into some of that in the comic, but I think the the way it kind of worked was he established them as a diverse cast, but the story he told was how well they all worked together. And so it, it didn't dwell on on the differences, so to speak. Clutch was always being a, a 1950s kind of guy and making mm-hmm. remarks to Scarlet. And she didn't like him. That was obvious at all, you know, didn't care for him at all. But he was a teammate. They had no trouble being on a mission together. Yeah. So it, it was, I guess, painted with a very light brush. But I think it's a lot better that way, right? They, like they never did a, a two-person story of... Here's Clutch and Scarlet. They always bicker, but watch them get along. They didn't yeah. They didn't have to tell it that ham-handedly. It just kind of was understood. These guys are all, and gals are all very different, but they're so focused and combined towards the common cause. 
that it, you know, it's a big lesson to teach. Right. And I think, I think Larry did it very creatively and very, with a very light hand, which Mm -hmm. I think is maybe the best way to do it. Oh, that's fantastic. And, you know, Mike, speaking of stalker, you talked about him drawing you into it too. So what for you were the first lessons you learned from, from Joe? Obviously it's clearly stuck with you because it's such a big part of your life. It's a big part of the community, but what were the first lessons you think you got from that from the franchise? It was the first property that I paid attention to that had a degree of skepticism to it. Like it treated me like an adult. Mm-hmm. I think that was what really stuck with me the most. Even the cartoon, to a certain extent. I remember my mom said to me, years later, I was older, that she was always concerned, because, let me let me set the record straight, all four <laughs> kids in my house growing up, we were all nerd, well-behaved children. Make no mistake. There were, nobody got out of line. But out of the four of us, I was the most rambunctious. I was the biggest smartass, again, Shocker. And so by default, I was the problem child. My mom used to say that, you know, she was concerned at first that I took such a liking to G.I. Joe. Not so much with Rob. Rob was quiet and stayed in his room all the time. But she was afraid that I was going to turn into some, you know, hiding in the bushes, jumping out and scaring people with with guns as an adult kind of person. Like I was like I was just going to make me this wild child, you know. (laughs) And, but then she sat down and watched the show herself Mm -hmm. and she liked it. Like she liked that the adults had adult relationships with one another. She liked that when there were children on the show, they acted like children. There was never some dumb episode of the Sunbow series where little Jimmy finds a laser blaster and keeps Cobra Commander at bay. You know, there was no, never anything hokey like that. It took place in as real a world as they could build, and they solved problems as nonviolently as possible. And that G.I. Joe, and and uh, I think Mary McDonald Lewis put it this way on our program, G.I. Joe was more about keeping the peace than making fights. And so that, that was what won her over, and she spelled that out for me, and that was why she let us continue to, to watch the program and be fans of the show. But truthfully, it was the comic book where I really found my voice, Mm. where I really found that voice. I don't want to say I found my voice. I found that voice. You know, Larry likes to say that, you know, people come up to him all the time and they say, you know, I joined the Army. I joined the Marines because of what you did on G.I. Joe. And his response to them is always, why? And it's not because he didn't like soldiers. I think the, the respect that he has for the people that do that job is, is, and he, you know, he's a veteran himself, you know, that, that goes without bounds. He absolutely has the highest of respect for all of our, our soldiers and our sailors and and what have you, but he's no fan of the government. And that's plain to see in GI Joe. If you read it for any length of those issues, there's a lot of there's a lot going on. The second biggest enemy in that comic book is after Cobra is the United States government. Mm-hmm. It's how the Joes are getting sold out by their superiors time and time and time again. And so there's just there's a very much a cynicism to GI Joe, uh, which if you can't like like GI Joe was never real graphic. It was never gritty. 
even when comic books got bloody and violent. G.I. Joe didn't follow in that path. G.I. Joe's grittiness was founded in reality. You know, and, and I, I think, think it's, I think it's a good point, Mike. Like I think about you know uh, the Cobra run uh, by all the by Christos Gage and Mike Costa, and Antonio Fuso, and all everybody else at at, uh, at uh, IDW, and you think about how dark that book got, but it never, it never had the kind of hyper violence or explicitness uh, that you visual explicitness that you might expect, despite how terrifying some of the stories were, despite how dark some of the some of the stories where you G.I. Joe's a franchise that never seems to have given in to the idea of those excesses. So I think you're hitting on something there for sure. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like the, the comic book from the eighties is, is how I understand. Like my dad's a Naval veteran, right? He served during Vietnam. He did not see combat, but it was a tough time to be in the military. Even if you're just my dad and you're stationed on the Kitty Hawk, you know, there's people that he went to school with that, that he knew that didn't come back. And, like, it's a tough thing for him to talk about today. And I think, like, really, of all the things that have captured that, G.I. Joe maybe did it best. Mm -hmm. It's not a real-life lens that you see coming. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's something that makes the franchise special. It's actually really interesting hearing everybody talk about this because there's quite such a... Uh, there's a special passion around G.I. Joe. And And what I think, actually, Paul and Sarah, I want to talk to you about as people who came to G.I. Joe later in your lives, and I think Paul will start with you, G.I. Joe is a big part of your life personally and professionally now, but are there any other entertainment franchises you think have like had a similar impact in your life like G.I. Joe that, and how would you compare them? Yeah, definitely. Before that, I wanted to say that, to bounce off of what Mike was saying, my dad is a career Air Force fan. I grew up in a military family, and it's interesting that you put it uh, that way, Mike, because I feel like that combination of cynicism or maybe just skepticism toward the government combined with an extraordinary sense of patriotism and duty towards your fellow countrymen is actually extremely common in the military. And it's something that like I recognized from my childhood and from the people, you know, from the adults that were around me as I was growing up in in G.I. Joe. So yeah, I do think that Larry Larry really captured captured that in a way that very few other other franchises have. Yeah, but anyway, Arun, on to your question. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. This, this, is what we, this is what we like. This is a, I let people jump in anytime you want. You know, we've talked about the impact J.I. Joe's had on you personally and professionally, but are there any other entertainment franchises? Maybe Turtles is one of them that's had a similar kind of impact in your life, still values in your life in the way G.I. Joe has? One that I think had a similar impact on me to G.I. Joe, but in a very different way, is, uh, is Star Trek. Because Star Trek is kind of the opposite of that sort of cynicism toward the government, you know what I mean? And and so I think that it's interesting to see the the way that they that they handle the same issues of 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 bravery and 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 selflessness and relentlessness, but with a very through a very different lens. And I think both of them have a very valuable lens, even though they they are quite quite different. Can you envision a GI Joe Star Trek crossover? <laughs> I would love to. Um, <laughs> wow, that would be yeah. I think you would you would just foreground that conflict, you know. I mean, and, and, and to be fair, like the because it's sort of the way our you know our pop culture in general is going. Like the more recent Star Trek stuff, sort of like the, the new Picard show, has very much like expressed that same sort of 
cynicism toward the ruling power in a way that the old you know, 60s to 80s Star Trek stuff didn't. But um, yeah, I think you just foreground that conflict. Uh, if you were like, you know, matching up G.I. Joe with like the 80s era next generation, just, you know, have, have there be some goings-ons at Starfleet and see the different ways that they respond to that. And, you know, in terms of like assuming everything is going to be okay versus assuming that, you know, we've got to look out for each other because the people above us aren't looking out for us. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I heard I, my first thought went to how cool it would be for Ben Cisco to yell, yo, Joe, um, <laughs> and do a DS9 crossover. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be good, too. <laughs> is anybody else? I've heard a lot of laughter. Who else is a Star Trek fan here? Anybody else have their Star Trek Joe crossover ideas that Paul can now pitch to IDW? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, you, you're going to throw DS9 in the middle of it, and I like it a whole lot better now. that's true that's true so you know sarah you know you also mentioned you you entered uh, joe through cosplay so are there other fandoms for you that have had similar impacts in your life or like have like i said to paul been maybe a few certain lessons in your life so this is a backtrack a little bit if we want to piggyback on what paul was talking about if we want to stick with the whole cynicism against the government i don't really want to go on that tangent um but uh (laughs) Come that, on. Go there. No, that's um, okay. We can, whatever direction you want to go, it's your show. Yeah, what are show. you talking about? I got no idea. A show that made a lot of impact on me um, back then and also now because there's a lot of a lot of tie-ins is uh, Battlestar Galactica, the, the reimagined mm-hmm. 2004 series. There are some similarities there. You can kind of see we're militaristic. We're dealing with a uh, big kind of implacable enemy. If you've watched the show, you know that uh, the some of the pilots kind of get put into situations where, you know, they might not feel the most secure and there might not necessarily be a care for them from the government. So I don't want to get too down the Battlestar Galactica rabbit hole. I'm I'm listening to a podcast now that's that's going through the whole series, so it's kind of fresh on the mind. But uh yeah, yeah, Battlestar Galactica and G.I. Joe, I can kind of see a lot of parallels even though they're wildly different in how they go about things but that's one series that that made a huge impact on me when i first saw it and re-watching it it's it's kind of hitting home maybe in a different way it's kind of hitting hitting home again yeah so are, are you seeing like a starbuck lady j team up are you seeing apollo and duke what do you think would be the cool team up between those shows I think that Starbucks could really use a good dose of logic sometimes. Yeah, maybe from a Lady J or some of the other characters. She was not the most grounded person on the show. Yeah, I think Duke and uh, Apollo would probably do well together. I, I feel like they would disagree a lot, but I feel like they would have a core belief system that was very similar, but I feel like they might butt heads. I would like to see Adama in charge of a G.I. Joe, uh, Joe group to see kind of what he he could do with that. Because who, who do you think on Adama would be uh, most likely to smoke a blunt with on the Joes? Oh my God. So we just talked about the new Caprica episode and that was amazing. Um, <laughs> so Chuck, Chuckles is my favorite character. I'm not going to lie. So I was really yeah. to see those two. Kind yeah. of, uh, if, you know, if that's their thing. Um, I would really like to see a scene between those two. I think it'd be, I think it'd be pretty good. So say we all, as they so say. So say we all. Sarah, what's the podcast you're listening to? Battlestar Galacticast. And it is Trisha Helfer and Mark, I think his last name is Bernardin. Yeah, and they're Mark. actually, 
yeah, they're actually running through the the series. So um, they just did a, a table read of 33 with uh, a lot of the cast. It was it was fun. Uh, and I'll say Mark is a is a friend of mine, and he is uh, one of the he's one of the most passionate, awesome guys you can think of. He's also working on a number of sh- uh, things, and he is I think I think he'll be working on the next season of Picard, if I remember correctly. So oh, wow. we get ba- we connect back to Star Trek as well. And he's working on a whole bunch of other things. I can't remember what else he's announced, but he worked on at least some of Treadstone, the spinoff from Jason Bourne. So he's a he's a really accomplished, awesome writer. So look up Mark. He also hosts a podcast, Fat Man on Batman, with Kevin Smith. There we go. Uh, and also Trisha Helfer, uh, really into animal rights, so she is awesome yep. as well. But yep. Mark, speaking of G.I. Joe, I think, I mean, it, it has led to so much of your life decisions and your life direction. And is there any other franchise you can think of that had a similar impact? You mentioned Star Wars, but is there anything else that, that ranks anywhere close to Joe? I'm a longtime comic fan, and it was the Joe comic that got me into the larger world of comics. And I liked superheroes as a kid. So as I moved into teenage in the mid-80s, I found Chris Claremont and John Byrne's X-Men run. Yeah. And, I mean, I, you're not really going <laughs> going out on a limb and saying, <laughs> I, I really thought that was pretty good. <laughs> but, I mean, X-Men was written so well back then, and it was – it told a tale of not quite fitting in. And it was so perfect for a kid about to become a young teenager that X-Men always spoke to me. And it took me a long time to warm up to other comics. Like I was never an Avengers fan because I thought they had it so easy, right? Mm -hmm. The Fantastic Four, they had it so easy. They had parades, you know, they didn't have pitchforks and torches. So, and that's for those of us with kids, one of the real joys of parenthood is introducing your kids to the things you loved as a kid, you know, provided you do it at the right time. Like I have one of my best friends is a crazy Predator fan. So he showed his son Predator at like four years old. <laughs> <laughs> he could not wait. And he had to deal with uh, his son not being able to go to bed for a week, probably. But my daughter and I are have been reading through the that X-Men run. And as a guy who, even to this day, you know, I love a good story. And the art to me is secondary. Not that it isn't important, but a well-drawn book with a bad story doesn't do much for me. But yeah. a, a really well-written book where the art is shaky, I'm still with that. I'm with that until the writing falls off. And... And But for me, Byrne was the first artist that I picked out from the rest and went, that's good art. Hmm. So that was just such a perfect confluence of outstanding artist, outstanding writer, and just the basic tone of the book really spoke to me and millions of other kids as a young teenager. Yeah, I think Claremont X-Men, you can't go wrong with. Now you got me thinking about, I like that this is a turn into crossovers now. Which X-Men and which G.I. Joe would you want to have come together? It's funny because I'm a total minority guy, but I love Cyclops. I think I, Cy- I do, too. He's the best. Uh, when he's written well, like uh, what Joss Whedon did with him in Astonishing X-Men. When oh, he's yeah. written well, he's brilliant. And when he's written terribly, you get what you saw in the movies, right? A love triangle with one flat wheel. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd love to do uh, not a team-up, but like... Cyclops on his own, maybe being hunted by Storm Shadow or Firefly, right? Something like that. Oh yeah, that'd be cool. I go, I go for that because I think, 
so often with Cyclops, what gets lost is the tactical leadership of uh, his skill in that area and the weight of leadership, not to mention being the only one who can't control his own damn power. So when you write him correctly and get the sense of the weight on his shoulders, I think he's just tremendously compelling. And the legion of Wolverine fans who are like, hey, it's just a geek. I'm like, man, you are just missing the boat. Cyclops was right. Uh, I stand with Cyclops. Now he's, and actually, as a kid, I related to him because I, what I thought was so fascinating about Cyclops and as a nerd, and it sounds like we were all varying degrees of nerdy, I liked the idea that Cyclops was really good at the nerd stuff. Like he was a really good student, but he was absolutely terrible at everything interpersonal. Absolutely a train wreck and a trash fire, dumpster fire. The man, he was really good at school stuff. And I can relate to that. Well, and when I first started reading was in like the 170s or so. So he yeah. wasn't a big wasn't a big part of the book. But when he did show up, it was, you know, he had this incredibly tortured past. If you hadn't lived through it, and I didn't, you just heard about Jean Grey, right? And at that point, that was a seminal loss in Marvel Comics. It was a major character with a massively tragic death. And at that point, there had been no inkling that she would ever come back. So... And I think we were all a little less jaded back then because there were less deaths every month and less resurrections every month. So it was a, a, a tangible loss to the character that resonated. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was, yeah. And then everything got even more complicated with Madeline Pryor and everything else. That's fantastic. So, Mike, what about, uh, what about you? What about uh, G.I. Joe obviously is the life for you, but... What, is there any other fandom that you think comes closer and has a similar impact in your life? I don't know if it's an individual fandom on its own because he, he tends to get lumped in with all the other Marvel stuff. But I'm a Spider-Man guy till I die. No matter what happens in your life, something has happened worse to Peter Parker. <laughs> it, it does help you when you're having that bad day. It's just like, whatever. Nobody's ever replaced you with your own clone. Get up. You know, <laughs> you... Your, your girlfriend didn't die when you tried to catch her falling off of a bridge. Come on, get up. Get up and go. And, I mean, you got to love the humor element to them all, too. But it's there as his defense mechanism. It's, it's his insecurity in the face of all these other heroes that he cavorts with and feels inferior to. It masks the fear that he feels in everyday situations. And if you learn one thing from Spider-Man... It's that you you got to get up, you got to keep swinging, and you don't go quiet. Yeah, is so he Spider Man's met the Transformers at least in Marvel continuity. Did he ever meet the, did he ever meet Jad Joe, or he was kept pretty separate from that? No, by that point they had decided they were they were gonna keep everything, you know, not mix the chocolate and the guacamole. It was too gr too great taste, best left far far apart. Yeah, that, uh, that, you know, chocolate and guacamole, you hear it here first. It's the official snack of G.I. Joe fans worldwide. Oh, uh, I'm, just, I'm just thinking of the marketing there. Chocamole. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like, 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 like Reese's, Reese's peanut butter cups. It's two great tastes no. put together. You know what? You know, chocolate and guacamole is two great tastes, best left far, far apart. Paul could add this to continuity in the next issue of G.I. Joe if he wanted. Look, the Joes are on the run. They got to make <laughs> do with what they got. Who knows? Perfect. Yeah. Look at this. We're already helping him. The, the, uh -huh. the residuals are going to come in for you, Mike. They got guac and the MREs. That's, uh, we're moving up in the world. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, it's funny hearing all of you talk about it. Do you think that 
this is that the depth we've talked about with G.I. Joe and the different ways you found your ways into it at different points in your life is why that franchise has endured in the way it's endured without, uh, unlike so many other franchises from the 80s, and that's not knocking anything else that any of us loved in the 80s, but many things we've loved have become stalled movie franchises or have had less successful reboots. But for all the ups and downs of, of G.I. Joe, as Mark has mentioned, it feels like Joe has endured in a really exciting and meaningful way. Even when it disappears from the toy racks, it's there in the comic stands. When it's not in the comic stands, maybe there's an animated series. It feels like it's always found a way to stay relevant. How much of that do you attribute to like the, the kind of lessons you guys are talking about? Mark, again, you've, you've seen it firsthand. What do you think has kept Joe so popular over the years? Well, I think uh, what Joe deserves credit for and doesn't get enough is how many times it's reinvented itself from the America's posable fighting man to a, you know adventure team and then to Super Joe and then gone for a while and then a real American hero and then Sergeant Savage and and eventually back and Sigma 6 and Renegades and you know Joe has has not been the same old same old for for years the way that you know maybe some other franchises have had the the benefit maybe of being but I think it's because the core of G.I. Joe is not war, it's courage or heroism. And and I think Paul said that before. And and as long as you stay true to that, and they've always been very clear not to make Joe, even though it is a military brand, it's never celebrated war. It's never come across, I think, as bloodthirsty or warmongering. It tells the story of normal-ish people with amazing training and amazing courage who are willing to stand up to incredible adversity. And that's that's just a timeless story that they've been able to, you know, to twist in a good way in a lot of different directions. But but by staying true to that core, I think there's always room for some iteration of G.I. Joe moving forward. Paul, you, you talked about encountering Joe both, you know, we talked you mentioned yep when you're younger now older uh, in a professional capacity how much would you attribute to endurance of the franchise to like some of the deeper lessons and deeper um takeaways we've been talking about here yeah i think it's a huge part of it i, I think what specifically that allowed it to do is i think the combination of those values and those lessons and also just you know the cool designs and the coolness of the concept in general has allowed it to take on so many different tones so many different styles and the interesting thing about G.I. Joe is that usually when, when you talk about franchises that, that reinvent themselves a lot or have different tones, you mean within different iterations. Like, you know, the, the comics will have one tone, then the show will have the other tone, then the movies will have this tone. But with G.I. Joe, you really go back to the early Real American Hero stuff, and Larry was experimenting with all those different tones and, and styles just within that one comic. You know, and that's why you could have a comic that could have stuff like the Mike mentioned the tanks for the memories issue, which is like the fourth or fifth issue they did, which has like this absurd, crazy concept. You could have stuff like 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 Bongo the Balloon Bear in the same comic with like our CIA handlers putting us in danger and we need to watch out for ourselves, you know? <laughs> like these are not things you normally expect to like coexist in the same comic, but but they do, and they do because of those core values. And in the new book that we're doing at IDW, one thing we've done with it is we've gone back to the original idea of the comic where every issue is is a one-shot mission. 
And that's allowed us to do things where we'll have one issue that feels a little more like a post-apocalyptic thing, another issue that's a little more espionage. Coming up, we have some really exciting stuff like issue eight um, is a spy story. Um, issue nine is Tunnel Rat in this like desperate bid for survival uh, in the in the sewers. And issue seven is is an issue where we deal straight on with PTSD. And it's, it's a flashback issue about Scarlet coming back from war. And her very long journey home uh, and her recovery from it with, with the help of, of Duke. We're able to do all these different things within one book because that's what this book has been for 35 years. Because it does have those core values, as long as you stick to those and keep coming back to those, you can really use that as a jumping off point for many, many different things. In the, the Scarlet PTSD issue, I mean, the things we talked about, like bravery, the relentlessness, uh, and selflessness, like that's... She's battling her own brain. She's not battling a terrorist organization, but those values still come through loud and clear, both with her and with the way that Duke works to to help her through that. So it's a, just a wonderful franchise in terms of allowing you to do so many different things because of those core values. And Sarah, what about you? What do you think is one of the reasons that Joe has endured where others have uh, stumbled? With G.I. Joe, if you look at G.I. Joe, as well as some other franchises that that kind of stand the test of time, like like Star Trek. For the, for the most part, and this, this kind of touches on what Mark already said, and he, he said it much better than I probably will, but for the most part, these are real people. You know, they're normal people. They have excellent training, but they don't really have special powers. The villains are, other than, you know, Serpentor and Cobra Law, you know, we're talking about real human villains too, with real human motivations. So at the end of the day, these are, you know, for the Joes, these are people that are just trying to do, you know, trying to do the right thing. And I think that that's what allows people to continue to either cling to G.I. Joe or discover G.I. Joe because it's relatable to people because we all have struggles. We all have things that we are fighting against. If it's not, you know, Cobra, it's real life things. And we can all look at that and we can all uh, identify, I think, a little bit with G.I. Joe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as we talk about the next G.I. Joe moving into the modern era with people like Paul Shepard doing it um, at IDW, no, hey, you're, you're, you're the one telling the new Joe stories right now. And what insights do you think Joe has now? Or how do you think it could reflect maybe on the modern era in a different way than maybe it has before or that some other franchises can't? And Paul, I'll start with you because you're you're in the middle of that right now. You're reimagining, reinventing Joe for a new era and like what comes along with that. Yeah, uh, it's too bad we're not on video so that everyone can see the look of panic on my face when you said, no, you're the guy telling those stories now. And I'm like, oh my God, you're right. <laughs> what we're trying to do in our book, um, and I won't speak to this too much because I think if you read the book, you kind of will see this is we're trying to show that as the world is changing, those values of, of bravery and selflessness and relentlessness are presenting themselves in in different ways. Uh, and we really, and this was, you know, has brought a big part of this as one like just us, but we're really leaning in hard on the everyday people idea in our book and that a lot of our characters don't have that vast military training. They don't have that vast experience. They're people who are being thrown into the deep end uh, of this very quickly. Basically, our aim was that when Larry started his book, it was essentially an allegory for the Cold War. And our book is an allegory for the rising tide of totalitarianism that we that we face around the world today. And you know, Mike, what do you see? You know, you've talked so you talked about Joe for 
decades and decades at this point. But when you think about Joe coming into the modern era, you think about a Snake Eyes movie, you think about Paul's comics. What do you think are the opportunities for Joe in terms of storytelling or lessons to be taught that maybe weren't there before? Well, truthfully, from a thematic standpoint, I think the Joes are pretty static. Heroes are always pretty static. They stand up for what's right. They they do the right thing. They fight the good fight. It's your villains that make you adaptable. It's your villains that drive you from era to era to era. And Cobra is one of the best. In the 60s, they didn't, they didn't have that enemy element. And through the 70s, you know, Adventure Team, it was kind of a man-against-nature deal. And then Super Joe introduced him, and they stunk, and that's why... Uh, Super Joe went away. But in the 80s, we finally got a worthy villain for the G.I. Joe franchise. And, you know, Cobra went straight cartoon supervillain, and it was outstanding. And the comic books, it was a little bit more Hydra, and that was also outstanding. In Paul's book, we don't know the story about them in full yet, but we know that at some point they were a business, just like any other business that's out there like an IBM or a Walmart or a whatever that just got to be so big that they decided they were going to run things. And that's your hook. If you're going to adapt a franchise over the years is you have to have a credible threat to fight against. Your heroes are going to be your heroes. Your heroes are going to be those plucky underdogs that you want to beat insurmountable odds and come out and have the big toothy grin at the top of the pile and give the thumbs up and everything's going to be okay at the end of the day. Like Your feelings towards your heroes don't change, but your feelings towards your villains, they change all the time. And that's the great part, or one of the great part. I don't want to say the great part because he's, he does a, he's doing a great job building every character that we come across. But one of the, the great parts of about Paul's book is that we are slowly putting the pieces to the Cobra puzzle together. And that's, yeah. that's what drives you to a new generation of, of readers. Absolutely. I think, Mark, you have a pretty special insight on this because you were part of Modernizing Joe. I think, uh, I think Retaliation is an underrated gem of a film, especially the director's cut. It's a damn fun time. And as you were helping uh, shape Joe's direction, what did you see as some of the opportunities, you think, to, w with uh, bringing it to a new generation of fans? Well, I, I wish I'd had more of a hand in, in some of the entertainment that was being done. And I had a very light hand, editing hand, on the comic book. I didn't touch Larry's book at all. That wasn't part of my editing duties. And for a guy who's written Joe forever, I mean, the godfather of modern Joe, he probably doesn't need my input. Um, <laughs> But I was able to to push things a certain way comic-wise. But I did it with a very light hand because I'm a comic fan. I'm not a comic writer. I'm not a professional. But I could lend a lot of experience around and knowledge of the Joe brand to it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I never really got to work on a cartoon or a movie or anything like that. I do agree that, that retaliation is uh, is undervalued. What the box office showed was the stink of Rise of Cobra lingered. And pubbing the movie and having advertisements run for a couple of months before you move it out a whole year is never a recipe for theatrical success. But yeah. what, what you saw with Retaliation is it did quite well overseas. But in the U.S., it did not well at all. The North American numbers were not good. And I think you had a great walk-up audience for Rise of Cobra, people who were not Joe fans, but aware of G.I. Joe from their childhood, maybe. And they went, yeah, I'll go see it. And then it was dreadful. 
And when the sequel came out, they said, well, I'm not dropping eight bucks on that. You know, fool yeah. me once sort of thing. So what I was able to do on Joe from a toy standpoint was focus on some of the characters maybe that they missed. The original 14th Joe Shooter, who was a Jim Shooter reference, but had never been done in figure and had her story told in comics. And I was able to get her made, and that was important to me. And and one of the things I just was getting to turn at the end was there's such an amazing cast of heroes and villains to pick from that you'd never run out of Joes and Cobras to make a compelling lineup from. But mm-hmm. what I felt they lost sight of on Joe and, and on Transformers too while I was there was the part of the joy of being a G.I. Joe fan as a kid was getting the first new figure off the shelf and flipping it over to see who are all the new Joes, who are all the new Cobras. And they, I think they just got lost in having such established character depth that they stopped making new characters. So you know, I got a couple of those made, one based off a fan author poll from Kindle Worlds, Stiletto, who was a great character. And then I finally made a, a Cobra who really was a couple years ahead of his time. He was Killmonger, basically. I wanted uh-huh. to make so many of Cobra's upper class is scarred or masked or maimed in some way or covered up, obscured. I wanted a guy, and that's how I pitched him, I wanted a guy who would bomb the Hoover Dam and then wait for the news chopper to get his good side, right? And we called him Tombstone, and he kind of went a little sideways by the designer, but I really wanted a guy who was evil Duke, and I think there was a lot of room for uh, for growth in that character, and I, and I think that was, uh, you know, a, a fixing of the rudder a little bit right at the right at the tail end of my run on Joe was look, you know, everybody loves Snake Eyes and Duke and Scarlet, and but you know we met them when they were new. Let's make some new characters to help advance the overall narrative. Well, Mark, you have hashtag. Paul, you have hashtag. Do you do what you got to do? I'll give you permission. <laughs> right. Uh, right there. So, no pressure, Paul. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> uh, no, he's already done great work with her, so I know he'll do it again. Um, I think, Mark, uh, I'm ready for Tombstone to make a big comeback alongside hashtag. I think we got another. We got a GI Joe spinoff that's perfect for Paul to write. But you know, now that we've given Paul so many great ideas, you better be picking up GI Joe at your local comic shop. Since we've reached the end of our conversation here, is kind of just see if there's th- if there's anything else you want to share with us about, or if there's one more thing you could share with us about your relationship with GI Joe. You know, one thing I will say that GI Joe has really done for me all my life is it, it GI Joe fandom has always given me a sense of belonging. Everybody here has talked about the I think the ethos of GI Joe, but GI Joe preached many lessons. But I think the thing it did very subtly that Mark mentioned it is it never made a big deal out of race or gender or anything else in identity. It just said, you're human beings. You should accept each other and be together. And I'll say, G.I. Joe fandom is something I've found that has always welcomed me like that. And I've tried to live that ethos in my life, which is you know welcoming people based on who they are, not what boxes we might classify them in. So I've always found G.I. Joe fandom to be an amazing thing. And I said it up top. I think what Mike and the What's in Joe Mind crew over the years have done and and all their iterations welcome people into the fandom, and it's and it's been an incredible, incredible experience. And I'm I'm so glad that GI Joe is around. To, I think in many ways, 
Uh, it may not be perfect, but it does lead the way in open accepting fandoms, and, I, and I've uh, uh, in many ways, and, I, and I'm really excited to be part of it. So I'm going to go around the table and start with Paul. Is there anything else about your fun facts, about your connection to, to G.I. Joe to share with us? Huh. Uh, one thing I've been thinking of as I've been sitting here, as you've been talking about like, the, the values and lessons from it, that I've told this story before, but I know a lot of folks who are listening, I'm sure haven't heard it. Like I mentioned, my dad was a career Air Force guy. He was uh, he was enlisted in the Air Force for, for 20 years. And I really do recognize a lot of those morals and those values and those lessons from him, uh, from how proud he was of his service and how patriotic of a guy he was. And G.I. Joe really means a lot to me uh, in terms of that and in terms of making me feel like a little closer to him because um, we lost him a couple years ago. And... Uh, it was actually right after I got uh, the offer to, to write the new G.I. Joe. And uh, telling him that I was going to write G.I. Joe was actually the last uh, conversation we had, the last lucid conversation that we had before he uh, got really bad and sleep human to cancer. So um, it really means so much to me to write this book that is about bravery and selflessness and all those things I saw in him. That's, that's amazing, Paul. Is there, is there? Do you think there's an opportunity in the Joe work to write him as a character? Is that something you've had <laughs> or been able to do? Um, I, I, I don't think so, but I think I've, I've done the next best thing I've written in some of his stories. I know that um, Mike was talking about, I think it was Mike was talking about how like, the idea that uh, in G.I. Joe you always get back up. And um, yeah. in issue two, we have a character who literally is beaten down by Scarlet and training over and over and over again and keeps getting back up. Uh, and that was actually based on a story that my dad told me about him in basic training and something that happened with him and his his drill instructor. And the situation was a little different, but um, it was you know that same situation where this drill instructor basically just kept like beating him down and telling him like this ends anytime you stop getting up. And my dad said he just kept on getting up and taking more punishment until he couldn't anymore. Oh, man, that's uh, well, I, you know, I think you know tip of the hat and like uh, thank you to him for. For clearly, uh, for everything he did for you, for his service, and um, you know, I think that's it. That's it's absolutely incredible, and, and I'm glad. I'm glad you got to share that GI Joe. You got to share the GI Joe news with him, man. That makes that makes even as a reader, it makes the book even more special to me. So, on that, uh, you know, I think we'll pivot over to to Mike. I don't know, Mike. What? Oh, that's a. I think that, as stories go, that's as, as powerful as I can imagine them. So you talk about Joe the most. So maybe you've covered all your connection to it. But is there any other impact it's had on you than you'd like to share here? The show is, as of a couple of days ago, nine years old, and I've been on for most of it. So at some point, I have probably let slip a, about everything I can think of, and and probably a lot of it twice, and probably some things I've changed my mind on along the way. If nothing else, I, I think G.I. Joe personifies what we always see attributed to what Mr. Rogers, of all people, said, in that when things go wrong, you try and find the people that help, and they make you feel better. And I think that's part of the attraction that we all have. You know, We all want the regular people heroes in our lives to be like these fictional men and women that we read about and watch cartoons for and buy action figures of. So that's the lesson that we need to take with us in our lives is to just always try and be one of the people that helps. 
And, and Mark, any other you know life lessons from GI Joe Impact that's had in your life you wanted to share with us? The one that really sticks with me, and it's kind of recent, Bill uh, Nedro, who's a, or say that again, Bill Nedro, who's a friend and a, an accomplished Joe author, put out a, a book just now called Joy of Joe Con. And a lot of people wrote essays in it about what going to the Joe convention meant to them. And I joined the Joe brand in 2014 under the auspice that I'd be making the new movie toys for G.I. Joe 3, which was coming to theaters in March of 2016. And that movie got moved out, I think, six times while I was at Hasbro. So I was making the small yearly line for a little while, but constantly working on this movie that just never got made. And eventually, if you're creating product that doesn't get built and doesn't bring in revenue, that puts you in kind of a dicey situation. So when my position was eliminated, and that's a hard day, man, leaving, leaving the brand that you've always loved. and. I didn't go to JoeCon that year, and I didn't go to the Hasbro convention, even though it was right down the street, because that wound was a little too fresh. But the following year, I went to the last JoeCon and really thought I would just blend in to the crowd, wear a Cobra shirt, and you know, even a 6'2 redhead can disappear. <laughs> and it was the complete opposite. I got so much positive feedback and so much ego boosting that the fan base and granted those are the diehards but the diehards made i i knew they'd make me feel welcome as a fan but they treated me as something special and that was really really cool and that's one of the things i wrote about uh in that joy of jocon book was that the fans even though i wasn't there very long and i didn't get to make very much they remembered and they treated me uh very very well and that's something i'll never forget and Sarah, uh, you're going to take us home to close up the shop here. So what about you? Any special memory connection lesson from G.I. Joe to share? I think that what Joe has given me personally, I think it's it's been the opportunity to get involved with with the finest. And that, that goes back to that feeling of community. And I, I was at the last Joe Con too, and I will tell you, I cried and I cried and then I cried some more. But uh, with The Finest, we've had the opportunity to raise quite a bit of money for veteran charities. We've raised over $75,000. And if you had asked, you know, when I put on that Zorana costume back in <laughs> 10 years ago or whatever it was, would I be part of a charity that's raising money for military veterans? Would I be crying because I don't know if I'll see my friends from a G.I. Joe convention again. I, and I would I would have no idea that any of that was in my future. So it's really impacted me on a pretty personal level. And I'll, I'll always be indebted to the fandom for that. So I think that is a great way to end it. I want to thank everybody in the panel here for joining us for knowing is half the battle. Life lessons from G.I. Joe as part of the What's in Joe Mind virtual con series of panels mike this is your show so i should probably shut up and let you actually finish it well arun thank you so much for taking the opportunity to host this we wanted to mix up the format a little bit and and i knew if there was one guy who always wanted the opportunity to host a what's on your mind and hadn't yet you were that guy uh, so so thank you so much for for taking that because i'm sure along the run of this week people are going to get sick of hearing me Thank you to everybody on the panel. Mark Weber, our regular host. 
to Joe Colton, who's not here tonight. Uh, she's sick. We're thinking of her. To Sarah Dietrich, who stepped in at literally a moment's notice. To Paul Aller, the writer for the IDW GI Joe. And one more time for Arun, our, our good friend from Boom Studios. Uh, support their works. Uh, support their people. Thanks for tuning in to day four of the What's on Joe Mind Virtual JoeCon. If you've been waiting to get your donations in for World Central Kitchen, you're running out of time. We'll be collecting through May 10th. Please visit our fundraising page at donate.wck.org slash what's on Joe Mind and donate. Even if it's only two or three dollars, that little bit of cash can still make a huge difference. Thanks also to the proud sponsors of the What's on Joe Mind Virtual JoeCon. Roma Collectibles, and Kokomo Toys. You can visit them online and shop their extensive virtual storefronts on eBay. Be sure to tune in tomorrow when Mark, Joe, and I host G.I. Joe acting legends Bill Ratner and Arthur Burkhardt in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Panel. Thanks for being here. Yo, Joe.